Well, it's been great to be here already tonight, hasn't it? Just to worship together and pray together. And uh, now we have the privilege of going to God's Word together. And um, just so you know, I had every intention to uh, get back into our study of Ecclesiastes. And I feel like we had this false start. Uh, I preached this one message on Ecclesiastes, this introduction, and said, hey, we're going to study Ecclesiastes together and uh, I feel like we just haven't been able to get any traction here with the, the book of Ecclesiastes. But just so you know, it's still on my heart. Uh, and uh, in fact, I spent a lot of time studying it this week, but just didn't feel like I was ready uh, after today, uh, taking a little bit longer down at Texas Children's than I was expecting. Uh, with Jacob, um, got back thinking, there's no way I'm just going to wing this. It's too important. Um, I want to make sure I, I fully understand the next section that we're going to be looking at. And we're really going to look at the, 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 the last part of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. They all go together. And, uh, and so, Lord willing, in two weeks uh, from tonight, because we're going to be off next Wednesday, two weeks from tonight, um, I'm, I think we're just going to, please don't, please forgive me for this, we're going to punt our, our, our concert of prayer, uh, because if we don't, I don't think we'll have enough time to get through Ecclesiastes before the summer hits. And so I, wanna, I might have to use some of our first of the month prayer times to, to do that. So um, anyway, we'll um, somehow adapt. Um, but uh, Lord, Lord willing, in, in a couple of weeks, we're, we are going to get back into that book, the book of Ecclesiastes. And I've really enjoyed studying it. And it's been very, very encouraging and challenging for me personally, uh, just... Um, the, the time I've been able to spend in it, but I can't wait to share some of the things that I've been learning with you in a couple of weeks. But tonight, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I want to look with you at verses 23 through 26. And uh, the reason why this passage um, has been on my heart is really for two reasons. One, uh, several weeks ago, if you remember, um, when Phil Mosier was here, uh, he had referenced this passage in a sermon. I think it was a Sunday sermon, and he he talked about it um, from a parenting perspective. And I had never seen this passage before, uh, by way of application to parenting. And I thought that was very profound and very insightful. And so that got it on my mind. And then during spring break last week. Uh, we just got back from a day at Galveston, and we were uh, coming in and unloading, and here they came down the street, and they, we, we all know what they look like, right? Um, and I, I, I picked them, you know, halfway down the block, it's a, a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses were walking down my street, and I knew it was only a matter of time before we were going to get this. And uh, I was thinking, well, what should I do? Should I just, like, act like we're not home? Uh, or or should should I just let them have it, or what should I do? You know, or maybe I should give it a shot and share Christ with them. So, anyway, uh, I, frankly, I don't feel like I did a very good job um, because I got a little irritated with them, and um, as they did with me. And um, uh, but I was the whole time I was thinking about this passage and and trying to apply it, and uh, I was having a very difficult time applying it. Um, and so I did end up reading it to them, because uh, if I was having a hard time applying it, just to be honest, they were having a lot harder time applying it than I was, okay? Um, if I was getting up here, they were getting up here. So um, not that I felt better, but I did definitely uh, reference this passage. It's a passage that I'm sure you're all familiar with, Second Timothy chapter 
2, verse 23. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Father, we thank you for your word, and no matter where we turn, uh, there's something for us to, to learn, there's something for us to apply, there's something for us to live out. And so, Lord, I pray you'd help us as we are often in situations where we must correct other people uh, because of wrong thinking um, or wrong living, whether it's hypocrisy or heresy, Lord, um, wrong attitudes, wrong actions, wrong beliefs, Father. I just pray that you would teach us how to do that in a more Christ-like way. Thank you for Paul's instruction here to Timothy. I pray we'd learn from it tonight and that you would help us to put it into practice in our lives. The next time we need to correct someone, Lord, we would do it in a way that would honor you and reflect our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, by way of introduction tonight, I am going to break one of the cardinal rules of preaching. Uh, They always tell you in seminary, never to make yourself the hero of all your stories. And that's why I purposely try to avoid using myself as sermon illustrations. I hope you found that to be true, that I'm not always telling you, well, let me tell you what happened to me this week, and let me tell you how I did this or that. But at the risk of sounding like I'm patting myself on the back here, this particular experience that I want to share with you is what God used to indelibly impress this passage into my mind and ministry. I refer to it as Black Tuesday, and it happened to the first church I pastored, and I'd only been there a few months, and opposition to my ministry had already surfaced in a group of disgruntled people uh, who didn't like some of the decisions I was making and and, uh, definitely didn't like some of the sermons I was preaching, began to grumble among themselves, and, and they began spreading rumors around the church and stirring up all sorts of strife among the members. So several of the men who were in leadership with me at the time thought it would uh, be helpful if I um, provided a context for these people to kind of vent a little bit and so um, kind of give them a forum to express their complaints and concerns. It seemed like a good way to address the problem and kind of nip it in the bud and just give me an opportunity to personally respond to the growing number of, of grievances. Well, I had no idea was what I was getting into. And uh, we arrived at that particular Tuesday night at the church and uh, I thanked everyone for coming and prayed and then just opened it up for them to talk. And uh, each in turn took a shot at me. <laughs> and they falsely accused me of all sorts of things. And it, I mean, it was brutal. These people were out for blood. And, and, and I couldn't believe how angry and how vicious they were. And it didn't take long for me to realize that nothing I was going to say that night was going to appease them. Regardless of how gentle and kind and patient I was trying to be. And so rather than try to defend myself, I decided it was best just to sit there and listen and learn whatever I could from their um, bitter, angry critique of me and my ministry. 
thankfully, not everyone there that night was against me. In fact, several people came just to support me because they knew what I was about to get into. I wish they had told me that ahead of time, right? But they saw this coming. And so one of those uh, people was an older gentleman who had served on the search committee that had recommended that the church hire me at the very beginning. And after the meeting was over that night, he came up to me and he told me how proud he was of me for just sitting there and taking it. And he complimented me for demonstrating such great self-control. And, he, and then he said something I'll never forget. He said, Ken, I have never seen anyone act more like Jesus Christ than you did tonight. And he went on to say that, that he felt that Christ-like response just made him look good because he's the one that recommended that they hire me and, uh, you know, um, and that they had made the right decision. Well, again, I don't tell that story to make... Myself look good, but whenever I read these words of Paul to his young protege Timothy, I'm reminded of that Tuesday night meeting and the gracious words of that elderly man. Timothy uh, was in a very challenging place of ministry. Evidently, things had gotten so bad in the church at Ephesus that he was tempted just to pack up and leave. And so Paul wrote him a letter, his first letter. And after his customary greeting, the first thing he said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, was to remain on at Ephesus. In other words, don't pack up and leave. Don't, 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 don't let them run you out of town. You stay put. Uh, why? That you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And if you remember, back in Acts chapter 20, Paul had uh, already warned the leadership of the Ephesian church that false teachers were going to rise up from among them even among the elders who would lead people astray from the truth by teaching things that weren't based on God's Word. And so Paul spent a good portion of uh, this second letter, 2 Timothy, explaining to Timothy how to deal with these false teachers who had infiltrated the church in Ephesus. And it was Timothy's responsibility to confront these men who had gone astray from the truth and correct their false teaching in order to keep it from spreading throughout the church and upsetting people's faith. And so in chapter 2, verses 14 to 19, listen to how Paul explained the tactics that Timothy was to use to combat false teaching and protect people from its catastrophic effects. Notice he says, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, many who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they have Upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. And then he goes on in verses 20 through 22 to tell Timothy to set himself apart from these false teachers, to be different from them, so that he would be a useful tool in God's hands. Notice in verse 20, now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And so he was exhorting Timothy 
to not be like these guys, to be set apart. And so now in these closing verses, in verse, verses 23 through 26, Paul explained to Timothy the, the best approach to take in contending for the truth against these false teachers. He, he was pointing out, he was explaining the, 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 the approach that would prove most effective in correcting their wrong thinking and their wrong teaching and their wrong living. And we know from this last Sunday, we talked about the pastoral epistles a lot, and the, really the overarching theme of, of the pastoral epistles, and particularly First and Second Timothy, was that Timothy was to gallantly guard and defend sound doctrine. Like a soldier, he was to fight for the truth. But at the same time, Paul wanted to make sure that Timothy didn't act like some religious Rambo. There's a right way and a wrong way to approach those whose beliefs or actions are in need of correction. Some pastors, I think, use their Bible like a bazooka. And they just blow everyone away, right, who disagrees with them. Some share their faith like a flamethrower. Just scorches everyone in their path. And despite their good intentions to preserve and proclaim the truth of the gospel, they end up doing more harm than good. And sadly, people are driven further away from the truth rather than brought closer to the truth. Instead of leading people to freedom in Christ, they leave them in captivity to Satan. When I read that passage to that Jehovah's Witness couple, and I got to that place where it says that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do as well, that, they didn't really care for that. <laughs> and, and honestly, I, I, I don't know if I shared it as lovingly as I could have, and they walked away, and I thought, maybe I, didn't, I, did, I did more harm than good in the way that I had communicated with them. And so, I, again, I think that's why Paul's instruction to Timothy is so practical, especially for a group of people like ourselves who take truth so seriously, and that we understand our responsibility to guard the truth, and, and to fight for the truth, and to protect the truth. And sometimes we can we can go overboard, or at least do it in, a, in, in the wrong way. We can do the right thing, right, in the wrong way. And so here we are shown how to contend for the faith without being contentious, and how to combat false teaching without being combative, or the, maybe the simplest way to say it is how to speak the truth without being a jerk, okay? How to speak the truth without being a jerk about it. And so here in these verses, verses 23 through 26, Paul explained four approaches, four approaches to correcting others in a Christ-like way that I think will prove most effective in helping them escape from the satanic snare of false teaching and false living. And these four approaches can be used with both believers who are uneducated, ill-equipped, misinformed, deceived, disobedient regarding the truth, or they can also be used with unbelievers who are blinded to the truth. And so whether you're dealing with right, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses at your door, or you're dealing with your children right in your bedroom, dealing with some attitudinal issues or some disobedience issues, these, this, is the, this, this is the way to do it. 
This is the approach that we're to take. First of all, we need to refuse to discuss silly, speculative subjects. Number one, refuse to discuss silly, speculative subjects. Look at verse 23. He says, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce what? Quarrels. And so if you are familiar with the pastoral epistles, Paul was beginning to sound like a broken record by this time when it came to commanding Timothy to to not allow the false teachers to draw him into stupid debates about speculative matters that, that cannot be proven one way or the other from Scripture. I mean, right out of the gate in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, he says, don't pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. He said in verse 6, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Chapter 4, verse 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Don't want to take offense to those of you ladies that are a little older there, right? Um, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, talking about those who have a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And then in Titus chapter 3, verse 9, he says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So back in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he notice he says it this way, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. That word foolish is the word from where we get our English word moron. <laughs> so don't get into a, a conversation with a moron, okay, who, who is thinking moronically, all right? Um, you know, the, the Bible says don't answer a fool according to his folly, right? Um, there are times when I felt like that was the you know, right response to maybe a conversation I was having with our children, right? And all of a sudden we were having this argument and it just kept going. I'm going, what am I doing? Why are we even talking about this? And I'm like, okay, I, 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 shouldn't, be able to, I shouldn't be answering a fool according to their folly right now. But in regards to the church, it seems like every church has some people who love to discuss and argue about what I consider to be silly little side issues that tend to get people off track on these endless rabbit trails that go nowhere. Or they like to, they're always the one that says, oh, pastor, could I ask you a question? And then they ask this controversial question that nobody knows the answer to. I mean, they will never know the answer this side of heaven, uh, or they always want to show off on their little spiritual hobby horse, right? Every time you get in a conversation, all conversations lead to this issue. You know people like that? I've, we've had people in, in our church over the years, they, they've wanted to argue about the ten lost tribes of Israel. And I'm like, you know what? I've been to Bible college and seminary, and, and I recently got a doctorate, and I can tell you what, we never really talked about this. In all those years, you would think if it was that important, you would have had a class on it, or somebody would have talked about that, but I have never once sat through any discussion of that in any Bible college seminary class. Why? Because it's all speculation. We don't know for sure. 
I never forget a guy sitting in my office a number of years ago, and he, he brought with me, he, he said, I really need to talk to you. And he was like, it was really urgent and, and important. And I was like, sure, come on, come on in. We'll have a, set up a meeting. I set up a meeting with this guy. And he came, and he was so passionate uh, about this, this, this subject that he wanted to talk about. And he, and he wanted to talk about all these Old Testament genealogies. And he had charts. He showed me these charts that he had made. And, and he was really excited about these Old Testament genealogies. And so I sat there and listened to him about 45 minutes just going on and on about Old Testament genealogies. And the whole time I'm thinking, I'm going to be honest right now, the whole time I'm thinking is, so what? I mean, it's really, so what? I mean, this, okay, this is exciting you, and that's wonderful. I'm, I'm glad it's exciting you, but, but seriously, dude, how, how in the world is any of what you're talking about helping you hate sin more, helping you love Christ more? How is it helping you develop a greater burden to reach the lost? And it just seemed like such a silly little side issue that wasn't worth anyone's time or attention let alone to say, Pastor, I need to talk to you about this. This is like changing my life. And I'm like, I'm sorry, dude. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not I, I don't get it, okay? I'm sorry. Maybe it's, I'm just not spiritually mature as you, but I'm not getting it. I don't, I don't see what there is to get so excited about. And so the point is we need to devote our time and energy to studying and discussing the great truths of the Christian faith that are foundational to the building up of the body of Christ, not these little side issues. And so he says, he says to Timothy, hey, Timothy, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. That word ignorant there is, 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 it really means without discipline, without training, or just being uneducated. And a lot of times people want to discuss and argue about things that they've never really taken the time to study out for themselves what the Bible says about them. And so consequently, they're just sharing their own ideas, their own opinions, or the ideas and opinions of someone else other than God, and what they're doing is they're showing their ignorance by not bothering to check whether or not what they think or what they have heard lines up with Scripture. They're not being good Bereans, right? Acts chapter 17, verse 11. I mean, here here are the the Bereans. Uh, Listen to what Paul says about them, and this is a familiar verse, I'm sure, but Acts 17, 11, can't pass this up. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. In other words, they weren't taking Paul's word for it. They were checking him out. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. I'll never forget a couple of man-ups ago. There was a, a group of guests, some guys came, and they kind of commandeered one table, and, and they were all there early, and they all had their Bibles, and I was like, who are these guys? Where'd they come from? I like them already, you know? And, and I came up, and I was just getting to know them, and I was commending them, and I said, I said, hey, man, I love it, the fact that you got your Bible. And the guy just looked at me and with a pan, deadpan face. He says, well, I ain't going to take your word for it. <laughs> I was like, I like you, dude. You're a Berean, right? That didn't offend me. That excited me. It's like, this guy gets it. That it's his responsibility to make sure that what is being communicated from the pulpit is biblical. And so if, if, if you're not a good Berean, right, you're not coming at things from, from a scriptural standpoint, all you can do is speculate. And that's what he says here. He says, listen, Timothy, refused. Just, just shut it down. Don't even get into ta- conversations that, that have to do with foolish and ignorant speculations. That's the key right there. 
things that have no basis in God's word. It's, it's totally subjective. It's based on personal opinion or preference. And so we should just flat out refuse to discuss people's subjective opinions or speculative questions unless they can back them up with Scripture, unless they come to you with the Bible. And so we need to encourage people to take their questions and their opinions and compare them to the Word of God and diligently study the Scriptures. And then if they're still interested in talking about it, we're interested in talking to them, right? We're more than willing to discuss these things if they've already gone to the Scriptures, and the approach I think we need to take with, with both unbelievers and believers who, who focus on what they think, right, rather than what the Bible says, is to remind them that this is not about your opinion versus my opinion. That's not what I'm here to say. I mean, it's not about your opinion versus my opinion. You need to realize this is what you think versus what God has said. That's the bottom line. We're just telling them what the Bible says. And unless they show us from the Bible what they believe or why they believe a certain thing or act, why they're acting a certain way, then we shouldn't be willing to discuss it with them. Otherwise, it's going to end up in a futile argument that leads to strife and division between individuals and churches. Notice he says, knowing, verse 23, that they produce quarrels. The only thing that's going to result from a foolish, ignorant, speculative conversation is you're going to get in an argument. And it's not going to help anyone. It's going to be a useless discussion. It's going to confuse people. It's going to tear people down rather than encourage and build them up. And I knew that was exactly what was going to happen when these guys came knocking on my door. And I said, the very first thing I said, listen, I appreciate you coming by, but I don't want to discuss this with you. Well, guess what? 15 minutes later, I was still discussing it with you, with them. I'm going, you're an idiot, Ken. Why did you even let them pull you in on this discussion? And uh, they asked for their little flyer back that they had handed out that they were going around. And they, 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 they had given me this thing, this event they wanted me to come to. They said, hey, well, at least can we have our thing back? I said, no. I said, because I don't want you to give it to anybody else. So anyway, I, I felt like I got drawn into something that I, I knew better. I knew better. And, I, and it ended up, right, in this, in this silly, speculative conversation that, that was totally off track, right? And so the way to keep stuff on track, on the track of truth, right, is just stick to stuff that has to do with the Bible. And so the first approach here is to refuse to discuss silly speculative subjects. Secondly, okay, again, this is, we're correcting, how to correct in a Christ-like way we need to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. That phrase there, the Lord's bondservant, okay, was a favorite term of Paul's. Uh, in fact, he often referred to himself as a bondservant of the Lord. So now he was saying, Timothy, now you need to understand, I'm not the only bondservant that the Lord has. You're also one of the Lord's bondservants. And those of us who serve the Lord should faithfully represent him and accurately reflect his actions and his attitudes. And notice the, 
the, the characteristics of Christ's life and ministry that Paul mentions here. There's five characteristics of Christ's life and ministry. He says, first of all, you must not be what? Quarrelsome, argumentative. Don't be someone who likes to fight and debate, but someone who promotes unity and peace. Paul said one of the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3.3 that he must not be pugnacious, which just means a fighter. Someone likes to argue. You can't be that way. That disqualifies you from being a a leader in the church. We're we're called to contend for the faith, but we must be careful not to be contentious. Titus chapter 3, verse 2, that we are to, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. So we're not to be quarrelsome. Secondly, we're to be kind to all. We should never be harsh or insensitive. Um, no matter how unkind and overbearing others might be towards us. Thirdly, we need to be able to teach, he says. Able to teach. Again, a, a qualification of an elder, First Timothy 3, 2, he must be able to teach. I like how um, Titus, um, the book of Titus, kind of provides the color commentary, uh, kind of expands what does it mean to be able to teach. In, in Titus 1.9, it says that an elder must hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he'll be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So we need to be able to teach truth, number one, that's the positive side of the coin, and the negative side of the coin is we need to refute error. We need to be able to do both. And then fourthly, we need to be patient, patient when wronged, patient when wronged. The NIV says not resentful. In other words, we, we, we can't resent those who disagree with us even when they treat us poorly. We must put up with being attacked and ridiculed without getting offended or retaliated. And I'm telling you, as, as this guy's voice kind of went up, I sensed my voice going up too. And I was like, what am I doing? I'm losing this thing here. I'm losing it. And uh, I, was, I was allowing that, uh, that retaliative spirit to come out in my heart. One commentator, uh, William Barclay, said this, said this. I think it's very helpful. He says, There may be greater sins than touchiness, but there is none which does greater damage in the Christian church. Yeah, I don't know if you ever thought about that, being touchy, right? Uh, we could probably just say that's being way too easily offended, right? I think too many of us in the church are just way too touchy. Way too easily offended, way too slow to forgive. And I love the, the example of Christ in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. It says, Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and yet while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You remember what Jesus said on the cross, Luke 23, verse 34, Father, Forgive them for they what? Know not what they do. He realized they were ignoramuses. Seriously, they didn't know what they were doing. They were sinning in ignorance. They had no clue what they were doing. They were acting like pagans. They were acting like unbelievers. So why get offended by what your neighbors think or say or do, right? If they're unbelievers, just chalk it up that they're unbelievers, right? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Proverbs 19, 11 
It says, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is to his glory to overlook an offense. I love that. It's to your glory to overlook an offense. I've told you this before, but I'll never forget someone told me one time that the mark of a mature Christian is they're not easily offended. They're not easily offended. Well, there's one more characteristic here. Verse 25 of Christ, he says, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Humbly and meekly seeking to instruct them without projecting an air of superiority. How many times do we do that with our kids, right? I mean, seriously, especially when our kids are younger, right? It's really easy to win an argument with your kid because you're way smarter than them, right? And so you can come across and be real, but wait till they get to be teenagers and they learn how to reason, right? And then, then you're going to get some payback, right? Um, the point is that, that we should humbly and meekly seek to instruct those in opposition with us. We should never come across as a know-it-all, Right? That, that kind of prideful attitude just turns people off. You've ever talked to a person that's like a know-it-all? I mean, like, tune that guy out. I don't want to hear you anymore. Speak to the hand, right? It's like, you don't, who li- nobody likes to talk to a know-it-all. So they're not going to listen to a thing you say. And so listen to some other verses that talk about this gentle attitude that we're supposed to have when we are correcting someone. 1 Peter 3.15, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Galatians 6.1, If a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Titus 3.2, we already read it, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. 1 Thessalonians 2.7, but we prove to be gentle among you, Paul said, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. What a beautiful picture of Paul correcting the church on Thessalonica. And then in 2 Corinthians 10.1, now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. In other words, Paul was seeking to exemplify Christ and the way he corrected his opponents. And he had a lot of opponents in the church in Corinth. And so each of these characteristics here in in 2 Timothy 2 that, that Paul mentions here to Timothy, they perfectly describe our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord was not quarrelsome. He was kind to all. He was able to teach. He was patient when wronged. And he gently corrected those who were in opposition. And so the point is we must represent the Lord Jesus whom we serve. That will keep people from being offended by us rather than the truth. If they're offended by the truth, that's fine, right? That's okay. If they're offended by the truth, that's fine. But don't you offend them by your unchristlike attitude. And so we need to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, We need to rely on God and His Word. We need to rely on God and His Word. Notice verse 25, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. If perhaps God may grant them repentance. Paul reminded Timothy that he was powerless to get someone to change their wrong thinking or their wrong lifestyle. Only God can change a person's mind, and only God can change a person's heart. In fact, that person can't even change themselves. 
No one on their own decides to leave their old ways, to turn over a new leaf. God must be at work in their life. John MacArthur makes this comment here. He says, No person, no matter how sincere and determined, can truly repent and change his own sinful thoughts and ideas and correct his own sinful life. Only God can work that miracle in the heart. And so no matter how hard we try, we will never change a person's heart, right? No matter how hard they try, they will never change their own heart unless God grants them repentance. And listen, beloved, we need to understand repentance is not a work, it's a gift from God. Acts 5.31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 11.18, and when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And of course, he says, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. Don't let anybody ever tell you that repentance is a work. It can't be added to salvation. No, it's a, it's a gift of God in the same way that faith is a gift of God. They're both. Repentance and faith are both gifts from the Lord. Notice he says, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, that they would recognize the truth and they would acknowledge that they were wrong and you were right. That's not easy to do, right? And so we need to realize that, that the, the, again, the point here is that we can talk to someone until we're blue in the face and we can show them all the right verses and say just the right things, but ultimately God has to change their hearts and lives. And I learned this lesson the hard way when I was in high school. I've told you this story before, but um, I was, uh, there, was, there was no Christian girls, uh, to my knowledge, in, in the public high school I went to. And uh, you know, I was a young guy looking for a date. You know, and so if I was going to date them, they had to be a Christian. So I picked out the prettiest girl in school, and I said, "I'm going to evangelize her. I'm, I'm going I'm to lead her to Christ, so I can ask her to the prom, right?" And so I would get into these conversations with all these pretty girls, all these cute girls, in my, and I'd be at, at, at home at night when I was supposed to do my homework. You know, I'd be on the phone with them like for hours, trying to witness to them and try to lead them to Christ. And I'd be, I'd be like literally hours like pacing around. This was the days before cell phones and cordless phones. And we had one of those long you know, phone cords that could go all the way into the living room and all the way into the kitchen. And I would just be pacing like passionately back and forth, you know, it's talking about uh, you know, creation and evolution and the Big Bang Theory and how ridiculous it was. And it was like an explosion in a clock factory made a Rolex and, a, and, a, and a, an explosion in a junkyard made a Lexus. And I was just going for it, you know, and I'm just going back and forth, arguing them into the ground. And, and, and my mom, the whole time was over there washing dishes, being real quiet. Just washing the dishes, watching her knucklehead son, thinking he was, you know, being like Jesus, winning the world to Christ, you know. And uh, I'll never forget, she came over one night and she pulled out the drawer where she kept the little pad and p- paper for the phone and she made a little note and I noticed her writing something while I was pacing back and forth and she wrote a little note and left it there. Obviously, she wanted me to see it. And so I came back into the kitchen, you know, and I stopped and I looked down and it said, Ken. Jesus never argued with anybody. He simply shared them the truth and trusted them to God. And I was like, oh, hey, um, I got to go now. Um, you know, I was so convicted. 
that she was right. Here I was trying to argue this person into the kingdom. And uh, the point is, I wasn't relying on God and his word. I was relying on my ingenuity, my intelligence, my eloquence to convince them, right, that I would have better arguments than their arguments. And it was all about me winning the argument. And so our approach should be the same as the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Listen to what Paul said. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech, eloquence, or of wisdom, intelligence, proclaiming you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That it would be obviously that God saved you and not me, right? And so we need to be careful here that we rely on God and His Word. And again, sometimes we, need, we, we, try, to, we try to save our kids, Right? We try to get our kids to change, um, and, and, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna and, and if we say the right things at the right time in the right way, that'll that'll change them, right? And how many times have we walked away frustrated, going they didn't they didn't have a, they didn't get a word I said, right? And you don't see any change. Why? Because you're you're relying on your own intelligence and your own eloquence and your own ability. You're not relying on God and His Word. And then lastly, this is number four, we need to remember the ultimate objective. We need to remember the ultimate objective. Look at verse 26. If perhaps God might grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Have In other words, the, the, the idea here is of, of somebody coming out of a drunken stupor. And so the idea here is that they're, it's like these people are, they're, they're intoxicated by error. And false teaching result, has resulted in a loss of judgment and a proper control of their faculties. You remember the prodigal son, right, when he was de- face first in the pig pen, it says he came to his what? Senses. He came to, if you will. And, and it says that they would come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. In other words, they would be rescued from the satanic lies that, they have, that have ensnared them. And this is serious stuff. They, they, they are being held captive by Satan to do his will. And by the way, you're no match, right, for that. Only God is a match for Satan. Satan's goal is to capture people and make them do his will rather than God's will. And so how does he do that? He numbs their conscience. He confuses their mind. He paralyzes their will. It's as if, you know, we hear these stories about people that get kidnapped and they get drugged and they get brainwashed and they're kept in this sedated state so they can't think clearly. And that's exactly what Satan does to us. Notice, again, uh, some people that Paul mentions in verse 17 Right? Hymenaeus and Philetus. Um, chapter 4, verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Okay? And then, of course, 1 Timothy chapter 1, 
verse 20, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. These are the guys he's referring to who, who, who need to come to their senses and who have been ensnared by the devil and have been, are being held captive by the devil to do his will. And so Paul's reminding Timothy that the ultimate goal here of correcting these false teachers was to help them to escape captivity to Satan. Dwayne Lifton, one of my favorite uh, commentators from Dallas Seminary, in the Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, false teaching and all its negative consequences in the church are always the handiwork of Satan, but God, in His grace, often salvages the situation through the Christ-like ministry of His servants. So in other words, God wants to use all of us, right, to help people um, to salvage people, if you will, from the handiwork of Satan. I'll never forget hearing about a guy who had an opportunity to debate that world-renowned atheist, Madeline Murray O'Hare. Remember her? And so he had this opportunity to, to debate her in public, in a public forum. And he got into this debate, and he tore her up one side and down the other. And when the debate was all over, some of this, this man's friends, brothers in Christ, came alongside him in private and said, hey man, you really came across a little too strong. I don't know, I don't know you, were, you were very gracious to her. In fact, I think you probably did more harm than good. You probably drove her further away from Christ than to Christ. And his response was this. He said, quote, I didn't go there to save souls, but to destroy a heretic. Bottom line, that guy lost sight of the goal. He lost sight of the goal. And we must never forget that the goal in correcting others is not to win the argument, right, but to win their soul. And when we remember this ultimate objective, rather than seeking to look good, right, we'll seek their eternal good. And that will totally uh, make all the difference in how we approach them. And so if you ever find yourself in a Black Tuesday type situation like I was in years ago, or you find yourself on your doorstep talking to some cult members, um, or maybe you find yourself sitting in your kid's bedroom, your teenager's bedroom, right, in a situation where you need to confront someone or something and correct their wrong thinking or their wrong living, this is the approach to take. And more often than not, what will win them over is not so much what you say, but how you say it. Amen? Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have of being stewards of your truth. We're humbled to think that you have entrusted your word to us to protect, to guard, to proclaim, to preach, to counsel. And Lord, you have uh, constantly, uh, you're constantly putting us into situations where you want to use us to rescue those who have been taken captive by Satan to do his will. And Lord, so often we, we blow it because we just don't come across uh, in a Christ-like way. And we ask you to forgive us for that. But we, ask, we thank you for giving us some instruction tonight to remind us 
uh, of how to, to go about correcting those that we love, that we're concerned for. And uh, I pray that you would help us as a church um, who loves truth, Lord, to hold it, uh, to uphold it in a way that, that is very uh, gracious. And Lord, that we would have that Christ-like blend of grace and truth. And uh, teach us how to be more like that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.